Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. I'm very excited to share this, uh, I think, rather odd episode of the show with you featuring uh, my friend Diana Young Peak. Diana and I met through the church, which she is a priestess at, uh, the Church of the Living Christ Order of Melchizedek. I was invited um, back in the late 2000s to the church by a member, and uh, it was someone whose spiritual judgment and interests I really trusted. I went uh, expecting there to be, you know, a big church service, but in fact, it ended up being in a small room in a hotel in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, each service, which happened monthly, I discovered uh, new kinds of spiritual depth and communion and unity with the people that went to uh, church with the order. It all revolved around Diana as the priestess and uh, her spiritual partner, Robert Young, presenting their meditations, contemplations, and their wisdom. Then we would all speak to each other, and then we would do a small ritual. It was very beautiful, very loving, and very warm. Now, um, this episode is called The uh, Stripper Occult Priestess You've Never Heard Of, and I don't say that to diminish uh, Diana's efforts at all. Um, In fact, uh, what I'm trying to do is say that there are, uh, and, and something that's very striking to me about her work and the work of the Order, is that there are religious traditions that have a long history that are mostly unknown by people and have just been carrying on and doing this kind of profound work for a long time. In the case of the Order of Melchizedek, it dates back, uh, well, to Grace Hooper Pettifer and her father, W.G. Hooper, um, back to the 19th century, probably before that, actually. But um, it And it's been going on and carrying out um, for a long time, passed on to Diana, who knows who it will be passed on to next, and yet it remains uh, relatively unknown, and I love that about Diana's work and the work of the Order, not that it's not known, but just that uh, that inspiring turn of something like that, where you realize, my gosh, there must be little pockets of religion and spiritual traditions throughout the world that are going on every day in little rooms with small gatherings of people that I don't know about and that are having a profound effect both on people's lives and also the currents of culture and the sort of spiritual landscape. Um, Now, I should say that I recorded this back in, I think, 2011 with Diana. This is uh, the same as the episode with Lynn Margulies' uh, uh, Against Everyone, Connor Beebe, 91, um, when I had the initial idea to do a podcast, and I really sucked at podcasting, (laughs) so it's good that I didn't start a podcast, but I have been sort of going through some of those old episodes. So you'll notice some differences here. I mean, the way I have a conversation is very different uh, in these 
sort of precursor episodes to the show. Um, the sound uh, isn't as good, and it cracks, in fact, when we laugh. Um, so sorry about that. There's not really much of a way to fix it. And please, audiophiles, don't send me your... Uh, don't send me notes saying that I could have fixed it doing this and this and this. Let's just pretend there was no way to fix it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the sound is better on the newer episodes. But more to the point of the content, uh, you can hear me being very eager to impress Diana. <laughs> she's a close friend and she's given me so much uh, sort of wisdom and, and food for thought that, of course, I really wanted her to think that I was this impressive spiritual person. Um, but I think it, it comes across as warmth and uh, a good-natured uh, <laughs> kind of apple for the teacher. Um, but the really the worst thing about this otherwise really great episode, I don't mean to downplay it for you, it's a really great conversation, um, but is that Diana worked as an erotic dancer for a long time, and this was something that she and I talk, talked about a lot. But because I was so enthralled with the conversation we were having, I didn't bring that aspect up or talk about it that much. And in fact, she has a, a way of relating a lot of her spiritual experiences back to that part of her life. But uh, never fear, um, <laughs> I will have Diana on again. It's high time that she and I have another conversation. Perhaps we'll include Robert if he's around next time as well. I wanted to... Um, <laughs> I wanted to also tell you that some of the photos from that time in her life uh, appear in the show notes. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, you'll see the post with this episode uh, 97 on the uh, Patreon page, and you can see some of those great photos. You also see show notes that link to books that we talk about and other thinkers a little bit about the order, how to investigate um, and maybe get involved with the order if you're interested in, and also a photo of me uh, doing a ritual with them uh, <laughs> at a certain point in my life. So, uh, and I, it's, I think uh, it's a nice photo of me as well. Anyway, that's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. And that is also where you can go to support the show. Um, you know, I always put it this way, uh, although I'm stealing this sort of from the from Blind Boy of the Rubber Bandits, who has his own podcast. But basically, he says, like, would you buy me a pint of Guinness? He's Irish. Would you buy me a pint of Guinness uh, once a month, you know, for all the content that I put out? And basically, I will say that too. If you like what I'm doing, if you like what I have to say, um, the conversations that I have with the guests on this show, the explorations like this one of maybe some things, traditions, paths, new information, new knowledge that you hadn't heard of, please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show now. Um, if you uh, sign up, you get all kinds of cool stuff back. Basically, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's sort of like Kickstarter for artists. Um, rather than supporting a project, you support an artist you like, and you become a patron of the arts in a very real way. It's not just a cute term. I couldn't do this show without the support of my patrons. Um, so if you are a patron, thank you so much. And if you're not, go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's also the way that I don't have to say stupid, uh, promote stupid products that I don't care about on the show, and in fact can just have a relationship with you, the listener. Thank you so much for listening. Also, please give the show uh, a five-star rating on iTunes and uh, 
the more five-star ratings there are, the, the higher it gets for visibility. Like the bad ratings don't really do anything, but the high ratings do affect the show's visibility and it can uh, greatly enhance uh, the audience's the audience it can greatly enhance uh the distribution who it reaches who sees it and who listens to the show okay that's my only spiel really i'm very excited to share this episode with you and to share diana's efforts and work and wisdom with uh, a world that could really use it <laughs> so uh listen to the show go to the show notes um if you want to get involved in or know more about the order and uh please do support the show as well all right here we go So Diana, um, I met you through uh, through church, um, which meets once a month, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, what happens there and why you participate in that uh, from month to month. Well, what happens there is that. Um, we simply get together and hold a discussion and a small ritual. It's very simple. Um, I didn't realize how much like a Quaker meeting it was until Quaker friends attended and said, Oh, I'm very comfortable here. This feels <laughs> like home. Um, but it apparently is. We are non-liturgical, and um, so our ritual of bread and wine, which is the core of our church meeting, is more um, a gathering of friends, uh, a family meal. We are the children of God. We are brothers and sisters. Uh, in the family, and we come together to have this this meal, which is uh, a ritual of remembrance of one might say the Savior within us all. Uh, we call it the Living Christ, but it can be called by many other names, and we call it the Living Christ because that's the name that we inherited. We inherited this church. And um, I have been working with this church since 1972. Hmm. I took ordination in 1980 and have been totally committed to it. Since then, uh, until I took ordination, there was a question. You know, I, I had options. Uh, I knew what I was doing and who I was, but I didn't feel it uh, necessary to uh, commit until it was made very clear to me by my inner directive that 
I needed to commit. I needed to take ordination in this group and take up my responsibility. Yeah, so let's, um, so I want to talk about, it. Uh, there's so much in there already, and maybe we can pull some of it apart. So I want to talk about Melchizedek and the living Christ and what what these people, these terms, these concepts mean to you. But I also want just to pick up on a few things that you've said already. Orientation, inner directive. So uh, what does orientation entail? I mean, whatever you can share about that. I mean, what, is, what does that mean, ordination and orientation for... for uh, well, there are a couple of different uh, levels of ordination. Now, to be ordained is essentially, in one sense, to be faded. It's something that's um, preset. You're ordained to be, um, say, male. Although it's not necessary these days, you know, you can be born into a male body and yet feel as though you are ordained to be female and, and, and make that dynamic choice to become female. Um, so the ordination is something that you feel from within. And that's the sense of knowing oneself. And ideally, we recognize that each of us is an ordained priest of the divine. Each of us has a divine element within us, the I am, the true self of being that is um, the word of God breathed forth into us as life itself, conscious life, self-aware. So that's that level of ordination, and that we recognize as extending to all of humanity. But then there's the next level of ordination where you take or accept ordination to a calling. And um, in the case of the church, I recognized that I knew my priesthood within already, but if I were to accept ordination in that church, that meant that I was accepting responsibility to and for that church. So um, that's a public acceptance of a way of doing things, a, a way of teaching, um, um, an established line. Mm -hmm. So when you say your inner directive asked you to, or revealed to you to accept this ordination um, in the formal way and then also in the almost destined way that you're talking about, what, what is that? What do you mean by your inner directive? Um, <clears throat> that one's interesting. Um, a sense of self. A sense of the inner being of oneself telling me this is what I need to do. This is what I have to do. This is a part of my purpose. And... 
most people that are studying higher forms of esoterics sooner or later come to the question of what is my purpose? What is my purpose here? What am I doing here? Why am I alive? And when I got to that stage and I looked and I said, all right, what is my purpose? The answer that I got, that I gave myself, was my purpose is self-expression. And then the question became, what is myself? (laughs) And ultimately, myself is the divine one. But the ultimate and the here and now me are two ends of uh, a continuum, as it were. They're, they're, you take a pole and you've got or a, you know, a, long, a magnet and you've got a north pole and a south pole. And you know they're, they're, one of them's the height and one of them's the depth. And that's not to say that there's a good and a bad, but that there is an extension of, if you will, light or breath. Um, there is the, the highest spirit and there is the material. And the material me is mortal. And that me, that self, that I is finite. It's not going to make it through the dissolution of the body. <laughs> but then there's this other I, the I am. And I am eternal. You know, that's going to be here. That is. And that is everywhere that is. Now, that extends through creation. Um, But that, then, is a greater I am. And I I like to, um, in writing, I will speak of the greater I am, all in caps. I am, all in caps. And then when I speak of the consciousness of the I am operative within me, it's I capital, A capital, small m to differentiate Mm -hmm. so um would you like to bring me back to the point (laughs) (laughs) you're doing great way off off no no you're you're on the point i mean actually i i think i think you answered it fine i uh, it was a question of inner directive which of course uh can go in a lot of different directions. And, and does. <laughs> and I'm interested, though, since where it went was this I am. I mean, you know, that that I am crops up in uh, different traditions, right? I mean, you have the St. Germain Foundation, right, which is the I am movement. Yes. And that's not exactly what's going on um, in church. You come no. from a different tradition, um, although the tradition to me has always been a little uh, – uh, I was going to say mysterious. Well, of course, it's a mystery, but uh, I also mean um, I'm not so sure of it. Um, it uh, it traces back to uh, Grace Hooper, right, and then her uh, and then her father, W. G. Hooper. Yes, and um, can you talk about that that lineage then, and where they developed this sense of the I am that you're talking about that you have understood, but also in a sense inherited. Well, W.G. Hooper, um, so the story goes, 
received the awareness when he was in Stonehenge. And I am not certain what the conditions were, whether he was alone, whether he was in the midst of a ritual with other people, um, you know, whether it was a meditative experience or an initiatory experience that was imposed from outside. Um, but he came to this understanding himself. And in what time period was this just for our This listeners? would have been in the mid-late 19th century. Um, and thereafter, his uh, worldly life began to have less and less attraction for him. He had been a businessman. And um, afterwards, he became a teacher and a teacher of uh, Melchizedek. So the, the Melchizedek teachings came to him as a result of an experience he had in Stonehenge. Um, the Druids recognized him and thought very highly of him, although he had not studied with them. He sort of leaped fully formed from from the brow of the father and um, was, you know, what he was. So they, they recognized that he had the teachings that they honored and accepted him as a leader among them. And his daughter Grace was um, um, the inheritor of his, his teachings. Um, she had a great deal of the spirit on her own. And I think it was not quite the same sort of thing that her father had had. Uh, she was perhaps more derivative than he was because he really obviously just got something. And he was... Um, very interested in, in the scientific elements of uh, the understanding that he had. Grace was very much a mystic. She was, her, her vision of herself was as the lamb in the arms of Jesus the shepherd. So, you know, that was her beloved. She was in love with, with uh, the Jesus figure. And she was totally dependent and, and submissive to that. And then, um, and then on to you, right? So we have this, uh, we have this revelation in the 19th century in Stonehenge and that, uh, I mean, it just, it just feels, it, it feels fun <laughs> to talk about revelations in Stonehenge and, and Druids and then pass on to Grace. And then um, we have you leading this, and I'm wondering if you put yourself in some sort of, uh, uh, without talking too much about history, we're now just talking about uh, experience with this wisdom and how you communicate it. If you put yourself in uh, in contrast or uh, in reflection, um, with Grace and then with WG, 
Um, what? How are you? What are you doing? I mean, if how she did was, I come to fit into this lineage? Well, and if she was, if she was dependent on the very dependent, as you say, and submissive, uh, or in submission to the Christ figure, and then he was just sort of in it and living it. How do you actualize and and realize this? Um, I'm a combination. Okay. I'm a little bit of both. Um, I came out of a, a very a Christian background. I was raised a Baptist, and you know that's a, a very um, emotionally expressive form of religion. Um, uh, Baptists don't tend to think a lot. There are not a lot of um, profound theologians that come out of Southern Baptist Convention, and um, so I, I was given that form of belief as a child, and. I tended, I, I rejected that in my late teens and became more agnostic. But I still had the mystical aspects that I, I had within myself, and I decided, uh, as a as a good uh, ethical agnostic, that I might not know if there was a God or not, but it certainly wouldn't hurt me to live as if there were. <laughs> So I, I took on the elements of, well, yes, the Ten Commandments are a really good core ethical structure to live by. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> let's, let's try that. And um, then my mind just wanted to be fed, and it wanted to be fed with ideas, and it wanted to be fed with concepts of spirit and God. Um, and so I was reading everything I could get, but I was still operating as an agnostic and had no idea that I was well on my way to something I'd never dreamed of. Um, so eventually, I had my own revelatory experience, and it took me by complete surprise. I had uh, read about such things, but I considered them sort of like fairy stories. Uh, this is not something I expect to happen to me. Um, and it did. <laughs> so that, so uh, um, I know a little bit about this, but uh, as much as you feel comfortable talking about it, it would be great for you to just sort of detail that. Um, what was happening um, sort of externally and then also what was going on inside of you. And, and because as you said, when you hear about them, these experiences, they often sound like fairy tale stories. I and mean, one of the reasons I think that is, is because, I mean, there's definitely an ineffable character about it, but sometimes people rely a little too heavily on the ineffable character of it. When the person listening to the story or reading about the story wants to know, like what happened, you know, and not just uh, hear that someone had a uh, revelation in Stonehenge. So we can't ask him, but I can ask you. And uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it happened. Um, I can I can point to a period of time uh, when it happened, and of course there was a lot that went into it before because I'd been um, 
in preparation for, well, all my, all my life I've been in preparation. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that until um, the recapitulation. After my revelatory experience, then I began to recapitulate my life, my finite life, the life of this human person, and recognize so much. Um, and it, it, you know, deja vu, it, it, it all becomes um, clear mm. in retrospect. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So I recognized that um, maybe other people didn't have uh, visions and uh, experiences like it I had had as a child. Um, maybe other people didn't have all these things happen to me that had seemed very natural to me. But um, at that point, I was uh, approximately 27, and <clears throat> my life uh, was changing, and I was going into my first Saturn return, and it was time for something to happen, and it did. Um, I was reading, I read everything. Um, I read Charles Fort, and I read Edgar Cayce, and I, I was reading Edgar Cayce when I was 14, and Charles Fort very little, little short time thereafter, and Arthur Machen, and, you know, all, all this stuff. Um, and it was entertainment. It wasn't like I was believing any of it. <laughs> um, and I came across a book in... Um, the autumn of 1971. And it was called The Esoteric Orders and Their Work by Dion Fortune mm -hmm. with an introduction by Gareth Knight. Sure, I love that one. <laughs> and that was the first time I had ever seen um, the name Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. And Gareth Knight's introduction uh, struck me and it moved something in me. It's like something went click. And I didn't really notice at that precise moment, but then things began to happen. And what are some things that happen? Well, odd coincidences, hmm. synchronicities, little things, tiny things that don't mean anything unless they pile up and then they're meaningful. Um, and I began to recognize that something was happening. <laughs> and in October of 1971, I said to myself, oh, I've been contacted. The, what the, um, what the book would call the interplane adepti, um, had contacted me. And to me, that meant that I had accessed a different level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it could mean that there are other entities, or it could mean that it's simply a different level of my own awareness. It doesn't matter. 
What matters is that the contact was made, the breakthrough had occurred. So how how do you know? I mean, what was? How did you know that the contact was made? I mean, what was the thing that convinced you that it wasn't just your own thinking or just uh, just a? I mean, there's yeah. a subtle difference. There's a, there's a subtle difference when the and it is very subtle. Uh, with the thoughts come into one's head. There's an awareness that is there. And it it didn't happen through a thought process. You know, we, we go through thought processes mm-hmm. and our processes, and we come to conclusions. We experience that process. And what was happening to me was that I was realizing that thoughts were coming, concepts were coming full-fledged into my consciousness and that there hadn't been a process. Can you tell me one of those concepts? Maybe just single out one. And um, After all this time, it would be very difficult for me to recognize one because now it's all, after you know 40 some odd years, it's all an understanding that I, I live within. Mm. Um, so I don't recall exactly what they were. It was feelings. It was understandings. Um, and many of them were outmoded later. They were true at the time, but then later became less true for me. And that related to something that I learned later about the planes in the tree of life. Tell me about that. Um, it's like, you've heard the phrase, lies we tell to children. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Sunday school stories. These are lies we tell to children, and they're valuable, and they're valid at a certain level of understanding and awareness and development. And then as we develop further, um, they become less so, because we then become able to accept and function within and embody uh, greater truths. Yes, and I think it's a very important point. I think it's a mistake that a lot of people who are into uh, so-called New Ageism or uh, who are themselves receiving spiritual experiences or mediums, channels, are uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of them believe that the thing that's revealed to them is static, yes. is an unchanging and timeless truth, when in fact the deepest truths themselves are changing and evolving through time, much less a truth that's received by a person that's changing and evolving in time from a source that's changing and evolving in time. You know, So uh, to expect one revelation to always be true um, is like saying... Uh, I mean, it's it's definitely true that uh, you know if I'm in a relationship, uh, I'm in love, but I may not be in love, you know, uh, a year later with the same person. But it is absolutely true in that time, 
So, yeah, I understand what you mean. And I think people make that, uh, I think that's actually one of the biggest problems with New Age and religious movements is that, uh, and certainly fundamentalist movements, <laughs> is that the truths don't grow and change. Um, and if they are, in fact, coming from beings, then they would have to change. I mean, they would have to be dynamic because they're still alive. And, uh, yeah, it's... It, it's it's almost like uh, worshiping the dead if you don't uh, allow it to well move. Um, apropos to that, <clears throat> one of the things that I had to jettison as I came along in my understanding was the um, the attachment to Jesus, hmm. because when I had first begun to open up. And here I have to acknowledge that um, I was in San Francisco in 1967. And so... There's a lot of Jesus jettisoning happening. Yes. LSD had a certain amount of, of influence on my life in, in the late 60s. And um, my early experiences were... Um, well, Jesus was incorporated into those. Mm. I had a relationship, a, a distinct and very real relationship with Jesus. And as a result of my spiritual revelation, what I came to understand was that um, the Christ was something greater than Jesus. Mm. And that Jesus lived a life, and a body died, mm -hmm. and that I too was living a life, and that my body would die, and that the I am that I am uh, is something else. Yeah, and I, I think I think the thing that's, I think that's something that people struggle with too. Um, there for me, there's a value also in respecting uh, Jesus as a human being in the sense of, uh, it, it's said by uh, by one writer who was at one point an anthroposophist, it wasn't the cosmic Christ that scrubbed the feet. It was, that was the man. Um, we, and and take, take part of that into our hearts as well and, and see, you know, that that has an importance. But also um, that um, also that the man, just as you were saying, events in your life prepared you to uh, receive this wisdom and have all this and, and, and everything is sort of lined up in your life. Um, we can read a lot of the books of the Bible where these are puzzled people. Well, so-and-so begat, 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 begat. We can see those as a list of uh, almost spells on a cosmic and karmic level so that we see every ingredient of the spell. Well, then there was this life, then there was this life. Shuffling its way and making its way toward incarnating this one human being who could receive that message. So I think that uh, in some senses, you know, it's true that the Christ is larger, and in others, you have a very special person uh, 
arranged to receive to receive yes. it. Yeah. Well, and that's when we get into orders mm -hmm. and what an order is, an, an order of consciousness or an, an order of being. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the order of Melchizedek, um, there is a, a concept that the order of Melchizedek is not a physical order, much like the... Um, the interplane adepti or the ascended masters. Mm -hmm. The order of Melchizedek is really something that exists on the interplanes. And <clears throat> that we as humans, as finite humans, can represent that order. And to the extent that we are conscious of greater self, we can be of that order. Mm -hmm. But as humans, really... Um, we are representative of something that I've thought about uh, a lot since uh, attending the services is how many little groups there must be in the world that are doing mm -hmm. not what we do. I mean, what we do is individualized and unique in its own but way. But on the same wavelength. Yes, and and our meeting, coming together and meeting, and that's. You know, it was part of my idea for starting the anthroposophy group that I started. Like, let's just meet and talk and have some sort of spiritual interaction. And part of that is in the spirit of uh, Rudolf Steiner's statement that uh, conversation is the new Eucharist. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I, Divine I, intercourse. Yes. <laughs> and I do think that I, I, I experienced that when I have real conversation with somebody, which isn't always the same mm -hmm. as, it doesn't always take the same form as having just a conversation with someone. Uh, well, that's small talk. Yes. But <laughs> even the ritual of bread and wine feels like a conversation. Yes. Um, and, or the conversation of back and forth can also be that kind of real conversation. It'll take different forms. Yes. But it's true communication between people. And um, so I think that, you know, the, the orders um, are all doing sort of different versions of that, of trying to hold a, a true conversation with each other. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, how you see the sort of grander purpose then of what we do when we come together in service. Uh, for this particular order, but then also for all the little orders that must be meeting here and there? Well, let's go back to the Tree of Life, the Kabbalah. I, I use that as a language because spirituality, high spirituality, particularly when we're dealing with the mysteries, doesn't have much um, of an agreed-upon language for people to talk about because most people don't talk about it. Mm. So there's a very specialized language that allows us to communicate those sort of things. And um, different groups have formulated different specialized languages to do that. The... 
inner school, and I say inner school because it's uh, a school of thought that I subscribed to but was never uh, trained outwardly in. I trained myself in it, and it... um, I'm not the only one that holds to these beliefs, so I consider it a school of thought. Um, The school of thought that I belong to is um, what they call Hermetic Kabbalah. And it is rooted in uh, Hebraic Kabbalah, in the mystery language of um, the Jews. Are, are the Hebrews. But during the Renaissance, those teachings which had heretofore been held within the Jewish community and within a very small element of the Jewish community became available, um, became translated into Latin and into Um, Italian and into languages that um, Christians could understand. And at that point, um, a whole nother form began to take off from the original um, Jewish root. So you have the Hebrew Kabbalah and you have Hermetic Kabbalah or Christian Kabbalah. And Hermeticism covers a lot of territory. Uh, we think of, of Hermes as the, the god of, of thought and mind and intellect. And um, Hermes is conflated with the Egyptian god Thoth. And so you have Hermes Thoth and you have Hermes Trismegistus, thrice greatest Hermes. And those are just terms that speak of these high thoughts that, that uh, allow us to touch higher levels of consciousness. And we personify them as gods. So to be touched by Hermes or touched by Thoth, um, or by Hermes Trismegistus, means that we have access to a level of consciousness or a level of understanding. And um, then, as I was talking about thoughts coming into my head, whole without a, a process that I personally went through, um, that's what happens. Once you've been touched by that um, divine flame, if you will. And so these thoughts are there and you access them much like you have access to a computer, uh, to a level of a computer. You you plug in on a certain level and you have access to uh, a server uh, that has lots of information and you download it and now it's in your computer. And that's sort of how that works. So, uh, so the the orders and the purpose of the orders. Are you saying then that 
I'm, they- I'm saying that there are different levels. And let's go back again to the levels of consciousness. Let's start with four levels. Spirit, mind, emotion, body. Which in anthroposophy, um, for the people that are acquainted with the podcast, that's right. There's the I, there's the astral body, there's the etheric body, and then there's the mineral body. Okay. Yeah, material body. But yes. So there are layers within layers of consciousness and that in gradation move from pure spirit to matter. Mm-hmm. And we might think of different orders as being those levels of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now, the highest orders of consciousness are those that are sourced in spirit. And then spirit, in declension, if you will, um, comes into manifestation as intellect, idea. So that's another order of consciousness Mm -hmm. and awareness. And in declension again, then intellect manifests in emotion. And emotion affects the physical plane. Right. So there are orders of consciousness active in all those different levels of declension. Yeah, well, it's really interesting to me because when I think of the orders, and I'm thinking of orders of people, right? Mm -hmm. But then what you're saying is that each of these orders of people is also accessing a sort of different order of consciousness. And that's what happens when they come together. So that's really fascinating. It's like each group of people uh, is like a pathway. Um, And I heard someone describe once uh, that each religion uh, was meant to give access to a a different being. And... uh, and I, I really like that. I mean, it takes religion out of being just like not not that it's not that these aspects are important, but it takes it out of just like community fundraising project <laughs> and that sort of thing. Social but, service, yeah. But gives you a pathway into something that's uh, uh, much much more than that, even um, because it's in in service not just to the material, but also to all these other aspects of consciousness and and. Think and of the it cosmos. As colors. Mm. You have the pure white light, and then the light can be broken down into many colors. And different churches are different belief systems, uh, different religions are different colors. Mm-hmm. Different rays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so then what your church or group is called is the Order of Melchizedek. So what is that order? Well, the church is actually called <clears throat> the Church of the Living Christ Order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we identify with as Melchizedek, um, 
is the realm of um, Keter, or the realm of pure spirit, um, the realm of the source of all things. In the Bible, Melchizedek is the initiator of Abraham, the one who brings the teaching of the one God to Abram, later known as Abraham. And so in those people who follow the book, or the Bible, or the Torah, or the Tanakh, or the Quran, or any of those peoples of the book, um, Melchizedek has a particular meaning. And of course that relates to the king of righteousness or the righteous king. However, outside of the people of the book, and there are a lot of people on this planet who are not people of the book, <laughs> you know, think of the Hindus and, and the, uh, uh, the fire worshippers, uh, the Zoroastrians and, and, you know, the, the Buddhists. So we need to go beyond Melchizedek to look for the real meaning, beyond, beyond that biblical uh, understanding. And I'd say that what Melchizedek means to me is the level of consciousness that connects to the source, the source of all things, to the creator, to the creative awareness. So Melchizedek is uh, a bridge in some way, or? Uh, yes, it could be seen as that. Uh, yes, a connector. Or a, ro a rope, almost. <laughs> a, that braided rope you would climb up that's in so many traditions. Yes, yes, it could be seen that way as well. So why did, why did Grace, Grace chose Melchizedek, correct? No. No. no, her father was the teacher of Melchizedek. Oh, so she added living Christ. Not she established the Church of the Living Christ. Okay. And at one point, during the time that her husband was passing away, she was a little distracted, apparently, <laughs> and forgot to renew the legal papers for the Church of the Living Christ. And when she went to have them renewed, she discovered that someone else had taken out papers on the Church of the Living Christ. Mm. And so she had to have an, another name. Mm -hmm. And so she said, all right, then it'll be the Church of the Living Christ Order of Melchizedek. <laughs> And so it is. That's what we were reincorporated legally as. Right. But so her father then, her father then chose Order of Melchizedek or? Her father um, was the one who taught Melchizedek. So is there a reason, what, what was his reasoning for? Uh, I believe there is a longstanding tradition. <laughs> uh. And... I'm not sure where he got it. I'm not sure what 
motivated him. But his understanding was that he was teaching the law of the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) And he gave it to his daughter. (laughs) He taught her. Um, As I study, I, I find that it does have a long history of understanding and, and that people have attached to that word for many years. Um, for instance, um, one of the... <laughs> one of the new agey things these days is Melchizedek. There's a group um, back in the 70s we met up with members of a group that lived, I think, in Sedona, uh, which is a hotbed of all that sort of thing. And everyone who joined the group legally took the last name Melchizedek. So you'd have Charles Melchizedek and <laughs> Michael Melchizedek and Jerry Melchizedek, and and they're still, you know, they're still around. And I was noticing just yesterday, I was reading about an event that's happening tomorrow (laughs) in Marin, where um, Michael and Diana Melchizedek (laughs) are um, teaching at the Living Light Center, I think it is. And they were um, given the understanding that they should change their names to Melchizedek, and so they did. Um, and, And... you know, they like to dress in, in white and gold. And uh, it's it's one of those things people identify with when they hit a certain level of consciousness mm-hmm. and they see this, you know, the white gold light and the, and you know, they just go for it. it, it it's, that's me. I, I recognize that. Mm-hmm. I am that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they go for it and they identify and, and fine. Um and and me too you know i'm 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 in there but i question a little more and you know it's the agnostic in me the agnostic is not going away <laughs> it's always there and it's saying well yes okay fine um so you believe this but there's room for doubt right mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that doubt is what allows me to balance yeah, I like that too because it it allows us to think of agnosticism not as a like when we're younger, as you were saying, we we identify it as sort of a position on God, a position on spirituality. Well, I'm an agnostic, but it could instead uh, merely be a useful impulse um, that is uh, that is in in that painting, you know, of in that painting of our. Uh, encounter with with spirituality and with science as well so it's not it's not a it's not really a stance and i think that's it's actually something that's always bothered me about people that claim to be agnostic i mean i'd rather talk to an atheist because um well first of all i mean the atheists always have intense levels of faith so it's always interesting to me faith in nothing yes Which is which is beautiful, right? I mean, the the main problem is is that they don't recognize it as such. But um, but the agnostic, it, it's it's like trying to catch a greased pig. I mean, it's just a, it's a little too slippery. So you you know, no matter 
whenever you think you have it held down, it moves. So as a worldview or position, it's not really that useful. But as a tool and as a method of encountering, yes. it's very useful and very effective. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know about having that question mark as, as uh, it's, it, it, all, it seems almost a little dishonest to me um, as a completely encompassing view. Well, it's not necessarily dishonest. Um, To believe something and yet question it Mm. is not dishonest so much as, um, I like to say that one of the hallmarks of mastery is being able to hold contradictory viewpoints simultaneously. Sure, yeah. And that comes under that to be able to say, I believe, but I don't know. Right. Well, that I'm, I believe, but I don't know is great. And I think that that's, that's very healthy. The I don't know um, on its own without believing that it believes anything, is uh, that's where it gets a little problematic for me. It's just as much as you know, people who believe and uh, claim to know, but uh, aren't really experiencing either. I mean, it's just like uh, some new, any new age cult or uh, a, a fundamentalism or whatever. I mean, agnosticism, it's like that's the, the sort of negative image of it. Um, I don't know, therefore I don't believe. And yet, looking, you would see that their lives are constructed of many intense structures of belief. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, I only brought that up just to say that it, I like that. And it, it also makes me wonder, or may, refers back again to your statement of all the gatherings of people and then all the religions are accessing different aspects of consciousness, different aspects of cosmic hierarchies, including agnosticism. Yes. Yeah. Um <laughs> And that part of the idea, and this is definitely was Rudolf Steiner's mission, but also also a mission in anthroposophy, was to bring all of them into relation to each other, um, to see how one emerged and bloomed out of the other, to see where they were connected, to see how they could find peace uh, with each other in history and also in consciousness itself. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Well, other people have tried wonderful things like that. As I as I recall, Sikhism is is an outgrowth of mm. uh, an attempt to blend different um, religions, uh, Hinduism and, and Islam, I think, and um, another um, Baha'i, mm-hmm. and to a degree, they're successful. And yet they're only successful for a small portion. Mm-hmm. Um, if what we're hoping to do is get the entire planet on the same page, <laughs> that's not likely to happen anytime soon. Well, no. I mean, if different groups of people have different uh, structures of consciousness, that can't happen. But, I mean, the, the, so the, a difference... And 
maybe some listeners won't like this, but the difference between, say, um, what Rudolf Steiner is trying to accomplish with anthroposophy as opposed to Hinduism. Hinduism has this sort of like, well, you're all part of Hinduism. Like, sure, you can believe in Jesus or you can uh, believe Muhammad was a prophet. That's incorporated into our system. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and uh, in so, in some ways, it's like you will be assimilated, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I don't mean that as in any affront to Hinduism, which is so amazing and beautiful, um, in in so many ways. Um, I just mean that there's some people who say they represent Hinduism have that sort of glib way of talking about it. Um, all they can represent is their own understanding of Hinduism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And millions, there are millions of Hindus. So it's a little, right. That, that has to be what they do. Rudolf Steiner instead, I think was seeking to find out, uh, uh, how each religion was paradoxically complete and yet, incomplete relation to every other religion. Mm -hmm. And that's a different sort of task. Um, it's, uh, and, and including all the other happenings in the world. Um, how could you resolve these? How could we have a holistic, uh, encounter with spirituality and science at once? Uh, it's, it, it was difficult. And, you know, of course it's not like he, uh, brought about utopia by doing this, but, nor do I think he necessarily would have wanted to do that, but it's given us indications mm -hmm. of where these religions, where these orders touch. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I, I like that. And, and to understand that they're not all the same, um, even in ways that are, they're not the same in ways that can even really be understood. The thing that can be understood is a relationship. So yes. if you tried to understand the sun in the terms of a flower, it would be very difficult. But you could see that the sun and the flower have a relationship to one another and how each of them grow and uh, affect each other in some sort of way. Well, what I'm hearing there is um, an analogy, not so much of the sun and the flower, as um, sound. And you have a note, and then you have a chord. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, notes and chords put together, and it becomes music. And then you have a great chorale, say. And everything is in relationship to everything else. But that single note might be very difficult to pick out of... Um, um, Handel's Messiah, or the Hallelujah Chorus, or, or you know, <laughs> Mozart, and yet it's all related, and it all fits in. Mm -hmm. And it, that's uh, a great example, too, um, for stressing the importance of unity as well as individuality, because one individual might hear that note and be tremendously affected by that single note, mm -hmm. where many others would miss it. But and And even adding to your analogy, which I love, is that um, there's also the aspect of sound itself, which is just vibration, right? We're told. So there's that scientific side of it. And then when we hear it, we don't hear vibration, we hear meaning. And so there are all these layers then. And so it's, uh, um, it just keeps, it, the, the metaphor 
rather than collapsing when we talk about it, just keeps expanding. And I, I like that. And and it's um, language. I go back. I keep going back to language because a part of it is my spiritual gift is the word, and uh, I only speak one language. I only speak English, but I can speak so many languages within it. And um, so we have, uh, think of people who have, how do you pronounce it, synesthesia, mm-hmm. where we hear color. Words may seem tangerine um, or, or green or, you know, we're able to perceive differently. Our senses give us different stimuli. And it's about language. In terms of uh, human experience, everything we're experiencing is, in a sense, language. One of the things that my understanding brings to me is the concept that we are all God. We are all the divine. God is kind of a uh, controversial term because then you get into God and goddess. And so I, I like to think of it as the divine. So we're all parts of the divine being. And as humans, we have self-awareness, so we have that self-consciousness, the awareness of the I, the I am. And we as individuals are like those notes. And all together we make the chorus, the symphony. Um... We are a part of the language of the divine being as it sings its song of self. Yeah, I like I like being a song. I like that better than <laughs> I like that better than uh, uh, I'm not sure of the exact parallel um, or uh, intersection here, but I like that better than Rudolf Steiner's assertion that we are seeds of wheat crushed in the teeth of the angels. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I like that too, but I, I, I like the that. Yes. <laughs> um, so I guess I'm wondering then all the way sort of back to this, the beginning of our conversation, the personal ordination, um, I know there have been moments in my life um, that stand out for me as uh, little moments of awakening, right? Mm -hmm. And they could be small and yet striking, or they could just be huge. Um, And, you know, I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, One example is when I was, uh, before I turned 18, I... went to this, there's an occult store in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where, near where I grew up. It was called the Occult Emporium. 
and they had a sign on the outside that said no one under 18 permitted. Mm -hmm. I didn't know why, you know, (laughs) but of course, I mean, a a store saying that's a strange, you know, if it's, if it's not a, a porn store, it's, it's weird to not let people in. I didn't understand why. And so of course I went in with a group of friends and I, I, I can't even remember how I got in. I just walked in and maybe they didn't say anything to me, but I remember, you know, this was no crystal way, you know, uh, health and beauty products to worship, you know, the goddess shop, right? <laughs> this was something, I mean, the goddess, there were goddesses there, but it was intense. So I walked in and I remember seeing this giant jar and in it was a heart. And on the label, it said, uh, lion's heart. And there was a lion's heart and formaldehyde in this giant jar. And it was oh, like $400. wasn't very, maybe that was very expensive for the time. And I remember seeing that and I just felt like I was sweating and, uh, I felt something sort of course through me, you know, that moment I felt so electrified in that forbidden place, seeing this strange thing for sale, thinking someone's going to use this. <laughs> what for? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure actually, you know, thinking back from what I know now, something like that probably shouldn't be used or <laughs> for sale, but I, it, well, it would, it would probably be for display. Uh-huh. And and it could prop up someone's self-image. Yeah. <laughs> but uh I'm sure that any ritual that that could be used for was probably not a very nice one. Um <laughs> I, I if it was in formaldehyde, I'm afraid it, it you know, it's not quite that's true. <laughs> but it, it, but I bring up this example not to um I mean, it wasn't like something obviously um, spiritually transcendent had happened at that moment. And, you know, I didn't know when I was that young. But I know that I think of that moment all the time as a moment of a possibility awakening in me. Yes. Like, wait, this is real. There was a sense of truth in that moment that I hadn't experienced before with uh, ritual, with um occult practices um with spells with these things that people must have been doing in the town that I grew up in you know and that was so strange um so I'm wondering if you can recount and in, in, in a sense that felt like an, a moment of ordination for me um or a moment of initiation right. for me um into that, what that would be an initiation a beginning yes and into what i'm not quite sure even still maybe we're constantly initiated but i wonder about these moments for you if you can tell me a story or two uh about some of those in your life okay one of the first ones that i recall <clears throat> was a dream and Even now, it's very clear. I remember the visual. And I have to have been about three or four years old. I know when it happened. And I know I wasn't any older than five. And I 
think of myself as being about three. It happened when I was living in Alexandria, Virginia. And where my parents and I lived was out in the countryside. We were actually living in an apartment over the three-car garage of um, what was a, a mansion, essentially, um, a grounds, and, and it had its own arbor and its own um, truck garden and stables and horses. And it was, it was the horse, horsey part of uh, Virginia countryside. And we were living in what had been the servants' quarters. My father at the time owned a small business in Alexandria. And it was just my mother and my father and I. And I was a very small child. Um, it was a one-bedroom apartment, and I slept in a, a, a small bed next to my parents' bed. And I recall awakening. And in my child's body, I got out of the bed and I went to the window and I floated down. And next to the garage with the flat on top, um, there was a, like a, a utility road that went back to the stables, and then there was uh, a whitewashed fence. And on the other side of the whitewashed fence, there was a road, an unpaved road, and a large field where, at certain times of the year, horse shows would be held. And I floated to that road next to the field. And then, out of the sky, came a sphere, a glowing sphere. And in that sphere were three male figures in white robes. And I understood that they were biblical figures. I did not understand that one of them was Jesus, but they were biblical figures. And they talked to me. And I am standing there in, in this unpaved road, and my little child's body, my toddler body, and these beings uh, asked me, well, do you want to stay or do you want to leave? It's up to you. And I said, um, I think I'll stay. It's okay. I'm fine. And they went, all right. And they floated away. And I went back to my body. <laughs> what an odd dream <laughs> to carry with me all this time. Um, later, I came to understand that um, it's not unheard of for certain uh, incarnations to have an option 
Um, after a certain point of time, do you feel you want to stay? Can you achieve what you came to achieve in this incarnation, or do you want to withdraw? Um, but at the time, I didn't know. It was just an, a terribly vivid dream. Um, perhaps the next thing that I recall was also when my parents were living in uh, Alexandria with me. And um, my dad loved used bookstores. He was looking for uh, books on things like welding, which is, well, he was a welder. But he, um, he also liked to read in, into Edgar Cayce and things like that. Um, so we were in a used bookstore in Washington, D.C. And at that point, I was maybe five. Don't believe I was in school yet. But I'd been reading since I was three, and I was quite advanced for my age. And it's a quiet used bookstore, so my parents are not worrying too much about me. I'm kind of wandering through the stacks. And the owner or someone that worked in the bookstore, a very nice fellow, came over to talk to me. And I would expect that he was probably wondering what this child was doing. <laughs> and um, he started talking to me, and we got into a conversation. And he sat down, and we talked. And I don't remember what we talked about, but I remember it being a real conversation. And then suddenly my parents became aware that I was having this conversation with this person, this strange person that they didn't know in the bookstore, and they hurried me away. And I got it that they were afraid of something. Well, of course, they were afraid that he was, you know, going to assault me or something. They were afraid of something sexual. And um, <laughs> that wasn't what was going on at all. But they had intuited an intensity and a depth that they felt was improper. What is, why is that going on with our child? And so they bundled me off. Um, that was an initiatory experience hmm. of a sort. Um, so uh, the, the dream, I, I, I can definitely understand how that conversation would be sort of an opening up and not just of regular childhood, um, you know, coming of age, right? Um, first of all, you hadn't come of age at that point, but no, and I wasn't but, going to church either, right? <laughs> so, but just of a new, uh, a new way of thinking um, and and seeing human beings, especially with your parents ushering you off because of the intensity of the interaction. But the thing before that, this dream that you're saying or vision or whatever, um, had there been precedent for those sorts of things in your family before? No. Not that I know of. Yeah. Uh, however, there was precedent in my mother's family for psychism. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it was actively repressed hmm. because uh, it didn't it didn't fit with um, my grandmother's way of, of thinking, and uh, so she she repressed it in her, in the family. On the other hand, when it suited her, she would use it. <laughs> uh, one of her one of her daughters was born with um, uh, a birthmark, and my grandmother, who would reject all sort of things like that, nonetheless um, practiced a little hoodoo and uh, got rid of that birthmark on her daughter. <laughs> and I understand she did it by um, every morning before she spoke to anyone, after she woke up, before she spoke to anyone, she would take her saliva and rub it on that birthmark and that the birthmark began to fade. Um, that's old country hoodoo. <laughs> so, you know, it's in the family. It's in my mother's family. I always say the, the, the Irish side gave me the fae. Mm -hmm. That's where I get that element from. Uh, my dad's side, it's English and German, and that's where I get the, um, the clockmaker's mentality, the, um, the intellectual. So, um, now I'm, I'm just wondering what other, so you do, um, you do the services and I'm wondering what other, uh, spiritual work you're engaged in. Well, there is the church of the living Christ order of Melchizedek. And that is what we inherited from grace. But there's also the Melchizedek understanding, which operates outside of the limitations of grace's awareness. And there, I work with what we call Mysterium Ohm. And Mysterium Ohm is... Um, sort of the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of the sound of the universe, the mysteries of the word that underlies creation. But it also is O-M, Order of Melchizedek. So it's, it's a, a code. So it's the mysteries of the Order of Melchizedek. And there I'm freed from the limitations of working with the living Christ per se. And I'm able to work in the consciousness of the mystery tradition, which includes the mysteries of every religion, the mysteries mm -hmm. of the planet. So I can uh, I write rituals and we perform rituals as um, didactic theater pieces they're no less sacred than the ritual of the bread and wine but they're not limited to a certain set of symbols and a certain language okay <laughs> well um i think as we start to wrap this up i'm just wondering if there's anything else um 
you'd like to talk about or include or anything you'd like to go on to investigate here? Well, I suppose one thing that I ought to say as we've discussed ordination and, and uh, priesthood and, and um, the, the living Christ one of the things that I should say is that when I had my revelation, as I told you, I had to step outside the um, Jesusness of my way of thinking about religion and recognize that it was the I amness and not the Jesus, but the, you know, it's, it's um, as Grace used to say, it's um, if your name is. Jane, it's Mary, or, or Jesus, Jane Christ, or Jesus Charles Christ. You put yourself inside um, that being. So in recognizing the I am, with my revelation came the understanding that I was a priestess. And this is before I recognized um, myself within or before even that I had gone to grace before I had I had been introduced to Grace Pettifer Grace Hooper Pettifer I came out of my initiatory uh, revelatory experience knowing that I was now a priestess and it was the next three months were a little harrowing um, because I had my experience on New Year's Eve and I was in what I considered the rapture because I was in a constant state of spiritual communion for several months and did not begin to come down until Easter, Easter Sunday. So for about three months I was crazy as an outhouse rat as far as I was concerned <laughs> and um, I, I saw myself as a priestess and I didn't know what to make of that and I thought I was just nuts but um, no one else seemed to everyone else seemed to sort of uh, see <laughs> something that I, I wasn't really able to believe in at that point I had to have it proved to me um, that's a that's a great reverse of the usual nuts where you don't think you're crazy, but everybody else does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had the exact opposite experience, <laughs> and so for three months I was just up there. And then, can I just interject real quick? Yes. What do you mean by up there? What was happening? Um, I was in a, a communion of spirit. I was um, information was just coming into my head and and I talk about it being like um, the top of my head was sawed off the entire bloody universe was poured in and then the top of my head was put back on and it was all in there and I had to sort it out for myself <laughs> so for those months I was dealing with this huge amount of information, knowledge, awareness, and I didn't have any real 
grounded structure for it. Um, it wasn't until a couple of months later that I um, discovered the, the uh, Tree of Life and the Kabbalah, the Hermetic Kabbalah was the structure that I needed to organize myself. And then um, on Easter, I went to an Easter sunrise service on the top of a mountain, a large hill, actually. And I knew when I came down from that service that I was coming down. Now I would ground. I was all right. I was not going to be in a padded cell. I was going to be able to function and make some use of myself in the world. And within a matter of weeks after that, I had been um, introduced to Grace Hooper Pettifer and become a member of her congregation hmm. and gone, hmm, Order of Melchizedek, this sounds right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and been there ever since. That was uh, spring of 1972. Well, that's great. And I, uh, I love that I was... Uh, welcomed by one of the members and I mean uh, is anybody welcome or what's the oh everyone who wants to come is welcome whether they choose to stay or not is up to them because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not um, we're not for everyone mm. you know, um, but for those that are drawn to us we can be very very comfortable but we're welcoming to everyone mm -hmm. That's great. And uh, anybody that knows you knows that you're welcoming to everybody, too. And uh, it, it's a pleasure to sit here with you and to speak with you. And I think, uh, you know, at the end of this interview, I feel like we're not done. So I might come back for another round sometime soon. Oh, well, that would be fine with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I enjoy our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Me, too.